it's very interesting, this question of someone's personal comfort. I mean, it is a comfortable thing for me to feel fluid. Um, and you mentioned, of course, my great, great, you know, North Star, David Bowie. David Bowie's Aladdin Sane was the first um, album cover. I'm not even sure there was a record in it, to be honest. But the first album cover that I ever owned, and way before I had anything to play it on, um, the image, that image of Aladdin Sane, of Ziggy Stardust, was, and I'm not the only one, genuinely transformative. It, it, it was an opportunity to imagine being everything at once. Um, not neither, just everything at once. And um, uh, he just felt like kin to me, and still does. But I think what, what he did as a, as a putting out there the possibility of just looking different, not even doing anything. I mean, forget his music and his extraordinary poetry and all the rest of it, but just that feeling of, um, of people looking different. Uh, I think it, it seems to be a really powerful thing. Hello out there, welcome to Pod Like a Hole presents a space pod at me, where your three astronauts are floating out in space randomly going through all of David Bowie's discography uh, by their intrepid magical diamond die. We are coming to the end, folks. We've got nine records left to go after this one. But on tonight's episode, or today's episode, or this morning's episode, whichever time of the day that you happen to be listening to this episode, we are going to discuss David Bowie's sixth studio album, Released in 1973, April 13th to be exact, coming right almost on the calendar day this album, this episode should be released around that time. It is Aladdin Sane, Bowie's follow-up to The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, which some would say it's Ziggy Stardust goes to America. But this is your host, Mark Branstead. And I'm always joined by my fellow Bowie uh, fans, geniuses. That would be Stephen Earle. Good evening. Hello there. And Stephen has always got his trusty sidekick attached to him. Eric Monroe Anderson. What do you got for me, Eric? Crack, baby, crack. Suck, baby, suck. That's right. It's crack. Get you high. It's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bowie will tell us all about it. Um, so, before we get into the, the album, track by track, and giving you a little bit of taste of 1973, which we already did in the pinups episode, both of these records were released in the same year, only six months apart. But I believe we have to do a little bit of minor housekeeping. First and foremost, I hope you guys are doing well in the quarantine zone. 
keeping your hands washed and your face untouched. Um, but we also do have a little bit of Nine Inch News that hit the news wire. What do we got? What's going through that ticker tape? Uh, I remember it, what was it, last Wednesday? Tuesday? Maybe Tuesday. Days make no meaning anymore. Yeah, they don't. But I woke up. Neither do my, words, according to Mark. <laughs> I woke up, they my don't. eyes were all foggy. I rubbed them and I, I pulled my phone out. and Right Hold up on. there. You rubbed, your, you rubbed your eyes, it's a violation. Ah, uh, yes. But I, a little, I didn't tell you this. I sleep with gloves on. Granted, they were gloves that I, I used to touch the grocery store and the underside of a public toilet, but I rubbed my eyes with those very same gloves. It's and, a Heather uh, request. She wants yes. you to touch her only with gloved hands. I got that sweet $10,000 life insurance policy out, baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she can buy herself a mansion and a swimming pool with that much money. That's right, a nacho fountain. Yes, um, but I did. Uh, I did. I looked at my 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 Facebook feed, and it was like new Nine Inch Nails album, Ghost Five and Six, and I like threw myself out of bed, took some so the the, the tore open the sash. Yes, to, <laughs> took the comforter <laughs> with me as I as I ran downstairs. You there, young man? What day is it? <laughs> <laughs> Am I dreaming? Pitch me, son. Pitch me. Uh, and uh, indeed, um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross released two new uh, selections to their Ghosts series of instrumental work. Uh, Ghost 5, which is called Together. Ghost 6, which is Locusts. The former being uh, as a reaction to the isolation and hope for the future, while the latter being the anxiety and fear that comes with that. And we will definitely discuss our thoughts on that in a special uh, Requiem to season one that we will record at a later time. And speaking of Nine Inch Nails, have either of you watched that interview uh, that was done via Zoom with some British journalist that apparently is a very meme-worthy? First and foremost, um, Trent Reznor is rocking the old butt cut like he did back in the uh, With Teeth era. Oh, shit! With a, beard, with a beard and glasses. So, like, I might as well... I think I'm morphing into him uh, as we speak. <laughs> Um, but there's a lot of good memes uh, happening out of that uh, out of that interview. Oh, I'll check it out. Awesome. Yeah. Have, uh, have either of you quick thoughts? Have you listened to the those all the way through yet at all? Those two albums? I have not. We, we, we will be covering them, but I have not. I'm I'm sorry. I've struck out. How about you I, guys? Yes, I have a couple times. Um, and. Uh, you know, set your phasers for score work and not don't expect rockers in there. And um, uh, you might be pleasantly surprised with some of the soundscapes they go to, but it definitely, definitely um, set your expectations to that. Yes, I've uh, I fashioned a large closet that was near my son's toy room, which was also my office, which in retrospect was a terrible idea into a makeshift office now that I work 90% of my time from home and uh, there were some adjustments made at work since COVID and I'm happy to say I am gainfully employed still and I work a lot more hours um, all these people that say oh I'm at home all the time and I have all this free time yeah good for them I'm at home all the time and I have no free time I have even less free time now where's Steve going with this you ask yourself I ask myself that all the time 
that first disc has been a very pleasant companion for uh, work music. It sounds a lot like Blade Runner 2049. Right. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, at first it struck me as it, 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 they're using a lot of the same bandwidth as uh, the music on some of the Ghost Team tracks. That's what I thought. Um, a lot of like lush, lush, uh, major key synth work going on on that, that, that first. Yes. It'd be Nick, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Ghost Team, you're referring to? You got it. Um, so that's but yeah, not we'll, all. We'll dive into that later. Yeah, that's not all the Nine Inch News that came out. Um, uh, there was uh, two things. One, <laughs> Cleveland.com, where our friend Trent Reznor's from, they decided to rank all the Nine Inch Nails albums from worst to best because of this uh, new album that came out. And they decided the worst Nine Inch Nails album of all time was the original Ghosts. I want you guys to know that. So, that's fair. I think that, like, when we hit our uh, uh, definitive lists, the one that the historians will look back on, I think we all agreed that that was at the bottom of our. Maybe not Eric, but probably me and Steven, though. Yes. They, they I, liked, I rank it liked. higher than Slip. Like Slip was the only one that was lower. They, they ranked. They went. They didn't do the EPs. They went. Old Ghosts, Locust Ghosts, Year Zero, The Slip, Hesitation Marks, Bad Witch, uh, Ghost 5. Wow, they really stuck Ghost 5 there. I have to listen to it for two days. Interesting. Uh, With Teeth, The Fragile, Pretty Hate Machine, Downward Spiral. This is not complete. You can't have Bad Witch on here and then not have the other two EPs. This is uh, and Broken. This is Invalid. This is a yes. fake news. Fake news. Fake news. Cleveland.com. Yeah. Papers, please. Yeah. And Funded uh, by the Epic look. Times. A little bit of sad news, everyone. I mean, this is sad times all around. Many people have been dying. Uh, uh, every life is important. But one life we will talk about tonight is we want to mention uh, William Reflin has passed away. That's right. Drummer for Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Chris Connolly, R.E.M., KMFDM. A lot of people. Pigface. He's a, he's a pig face. He's a hell of a drummer. He did a lot of stuff with industrial bands, but he also did stuff with... He, fuck, he was part of the uh, King Crimson in one, in one of their iterations. He was definitely a part of the soundtrack to my life growing up. Like, like my teens, at least. Like, he was one of the first uh, drummers, I actually. kind of remembered, like... When I started getting the music on my own, on my, on my own terms, uh, Bill Reflin was one of the first drummers I kind of remember knowing. And it was mainly because uh, I thought he was so badass in, the, in case you don't feel like showing up, VHS copy I had. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just look at it's his discography. Nice. He's been so much shit. Yeah, I was going to say, it's always nice that um, all of these artists uh, poured out, you know, a lot of good fond farewells. And he seemed to be a really good guy, you know, so uh, thoughts and prayers, whatever that means, or condolences to those that knew this man. Um, but uh, yeah, his drumming style, um, just a consummate professional. Um, so yeah. May you sleep, uh, sleep soundly, dear Prince. Um, but yeah, interesting. Yeah, he 
he started uh, he, King Crimson, as we know, they have a billion lineups, and uh, he, he started with them as a drummer, and then he became a keyboard player for them. Fascinating. That is something. So that's uh, that's all the nice news over in the Bowie bulletins. Two things: uh, Bowie's son, the Duncan Jones, that son, thinks he's a funny guy. As an April Fool's joke, he said that someone was trying to make a. a, a there, there, they were in deep discussions about an animated show about David Bowie's life. So, I would, uh, I don't know how that's funny, that because, that that would be great. I, I don't, I, I don't like April Fools, especially right now. I don't appreciate it when the joke is something awesome that everybody wants. That would be good for the yeah. world. That's just like. And not, they said, and, cool. and, and he said it was going to be made by the guys that made Wallace and Gromit fuck out of here well that's cool i mean that's like uh i think that came dreamed up out of eric's own head <laughs> that reminds me of when i to this day i find it this is hilarious to me uh mark and i one of our friends in high school he's older than us he always this is before the internet could prove everybody was wrong and he would just make up stupid ass shit that he said he would heard like about movies like you know this is in the late 90s, so he would say, like, yeah, the next Star Wars is going to uh, have the actual Indiana Jones in it. And it's not Harrison Ford, but the actual Indiana Jones is going to be in the next Star Wars. Or he would say, yeah, Quentin Tarantino is going to make a Deep Space Nine movie. He said that. He said Quentin Tarantino is going to make a Deep Space Nine movie. And this is back in the late 90s. Yep. And then a few years ago, is the, 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 really, Quentin Tarantino said he was going to make a Star Trek movie. So uh, I, I always just find it hilarious that Who's laughing now? Who's laughing now? Anyhow, that 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 kind of shenanigans is what old Duncan Jones over here was trying to do. We're not laughing now. The other news is that uh friend of Eric, Jeremiah Kwai. Ha! Me? What? Yeah. Jeremiah? You know it's uh, virtual insanity. Oh, I'm yeah, familiar. Maybe. I don't know. He wears the fucking Dr. Seuss hats. I don't know why he's he's my friend, but God, go ahead. Protesting a bit much there, Eric. He made a he made a remake. He made a remake rework, uh, remix of Let's Dance, and he turned it into a coronavirus song called Lockdown. So if you want to waste your time checking that out, you can. Oh, I scraped the bottom of the barrel, and that's the news I found. <laughs> nice work. Not a stone unturned on this podcast. We are very thorough. Thorough as the day is long. Um, we are thorough as the Northern Star is constant, like Admiral Chang. Get your racist memes out of here, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, it's, it's late. Admiral Chang was a Klingon. I know all Klingons look the same to you. <laughs> <laughs> Not this one. He he didn't have hair. Uh, so, and he also had an eye patch, and he also knew his Shakespeare. Anyhow, I think we should move on because we've got a lot to get into tonight. We are going to look at a lad insane, or Aladdin sane, or um, not the Aladdin soundtrack that I thought we would be listening to tonight. But uh, it is what it is. Wanna, they all can't be zingers. <laughs> 
Mike, Mike I mean, Darson's keyboard playing is a whole new world. I'll tell you that much. I tell you what, he let the cats loose on that keyboard um, <laughs> per his usual style. So um, we already kind of discussed night. Do you, do you picture Paul Schaefer when you think of him? I always do. I, when I think of him. Oh, I do. Be, yeah, I do. I, I mean, just, uh, <laughs> I mean, they have the same look. They go to the same barber. That's true. They may buy their suits from the same tailor. That's also true. Um, so yeah. Have they ever been that, in the same place at the same time? It checks out. I mean, one is Canadian and I think the other is just, uh, born in the old U S of a, but, uh, you pick which one. Um, but Eric, we've already talked about 1973. Is there anything that we need to relitigate or re-go over of the year 1973? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, usually we do a little history lesson here, but we just did this for pinups. Same year, actually. This came out before pinups, but same year. Um, just to reset the table. Um, big news. Roe versus Wade passed. Vietnam pulled, U.S. pulled the troops out. President Nixon did that. But then uh sidestep straight into watergate um and uh big movies like exorcist deliverance and uh big albums like dark side of the moon and um you know abba and the eagles were huge uh but yeah we talked about all that before so that sets us up was there any between between the last time we talked about 1973 and this time were there any pandemics in 1973 I don't know, man. Not, I mean, I think our last uh, major pandemic was in 1918, the old Spanish flu, which is an archaic way of talking about uh, a flu, if you get my drift. Um, so, yes, no pandemics. We are clearly in an unprecedented time that I hope I never see again in my lifetime. Um, thoughts definitely are for those that are affected. Um, you know, and if you've known anyone that's affected that's out there, I'm not trying to make light of this conversation by any means. It's a weird, scary time, and we're all trying to do our best. The show is just meant to give you, hopefully, a glimpse of normalcy as you go about your day locked inside. Hopefully, you are locked inside and not trying to spread this damn thing out and about, out and around. Let's just get through this fucking thing. That's all I have to say. Can I, um, before we kind of finish, move, move into the, uh, what's next, Eric? We're going to talk about the making of the album. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to let you guys start that while I run to the restroom. Well, he usually talks about it. <laughs> I know that's his job. As he goes to the restroom, it's just like, we're going to be looking at All each right. other. Like, so, right, gonna, uh, fuck, fuck. okay. So, so while you're gone, too, do you, want me to fucking teach, you want me to teach a school district too while you're gone? And then uh, you can go sell some <laughs> Apple products. Exactly. Uh, wearing his hats. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, oh boy. Uh, right. I do have to say, uh, you know, actually, yes, this is every podcast you listen to now is going to be talking about the pandemic unless they're released. They're recorded six months ago. So we hate to beat horses that people are already beating, but you can't help it. You can't escape it. It's our lives right now. I do. I do have to say, uh, I have noticed that I listen to less podcasts because my pad, my podcast routine was tied so closely to my work routine 
now that time has no meaning and I could wake up at any time and do work. I don't commute anywhere for the most part. Uh, I, I don't listen to nearly as many podcasts right now. My queue is stacking up, but for some reason I listen to much more music, which is a nice side effect. Uh, Mark, have you experienced similar or different or you, or what's your routine like? So Audibly. it seems that um, as we are all sequestered, it seems that a lot of uh, podcasters out there have really ramped up their their production. So just like you, there is quite a backlog that I'm trying to work through. Um, I wish I actually made a little bit more time for my music because um, I'm, I'm definitely being a completist and being like, shit, look at all these episodes. I got to I, I got to just dig into this. Um, but there are times where I do set aside like, okay, an hour, I need this next hour and a half. I just need to listen to some music. Um, and, uh, that's what's keeping me by, but I will have to admit, um, there's a lot of content out there right now because podcasters are doing what we're doing. They are sitting in locked at home and the only way to talk to their friends and their creative outlets is through the old internet. Are you one of those weird motherfuckers that, uh, in order to get through the podcast stack, you listen to it sped up? No, I am not one of those weird fuckers. That gives me anxiety. Heard of, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Do that. That's, yeah, they that's, do. that's madness. That's, like, that's madness. It is madness. That's that speed. That's, that speedballing content just to say you did it. It's not even enjoyable. Yeah. Why, no, why are you not, even just, just stop subscribing? If that's how you have to listen to it. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It's not supposed to be homework. It's just, uh, that's, that's the day and age. That's that weird. You know, we, uh, some of us are more completists than others on this podcast, but that's this weird got to catch them all mentality that people have. A lot of people have these days. I got no, thank you. No. If you're listening to the show right now, sped up, you are missing out on Mark's beautiful, timber of his voice the rumble it's true the the syrupy the syrupy sweetness you're missing out on it and you're doing yourself a disservice get the fuck out of here thank you that's true i do try to keep it low just you just uh you're just uh eating spoonfuls of honey while we record just to make sure it's (laughs) absolutely smooth so speaking of low well, not really. Speaking of Aladdin Sane, uh, <laughs> Eric, what was the story behind the recordings of Aladdin Sane? Yes, yes. Um, so uh, a lot of people considered Ziggy Stardust his breakthrough, massive album. He created a whole character for it. And, uh, you know, his backing band, which was Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder, Mick Woodmansey, they were the Spiders from Mars. And it was a kind of it was a phase Bowie wasn't quite ready to let go. Um, he was kind of getting folded in with this emerging glam rock genre and uh, as one of the best. And, uh, you know, just uh, decided to follow up with a another album in the same vein um, where he was still playing, essentially. I mean, even though the songs aren't really about it, uh, his onstage persona and his album cover persona was and his singing persona was definitely very much Ziggy Stardust and his band was definitely in that glam rock uh, niche. Um, and uh, they began uh, they began working on it um, 
And the it's a pun on the uh, lad insane, as Mark told us earlier, um, which uh, was, you know, basically the craziness of stardom taking him to America and the world he got involved with there, um, kind of what that would do to his his Ziggy Stardust uh, persona. So um, that's kind of the background. Ziggy Stardust goes to America is uh, what he would explain it as. And you can kind of hear it. The location of each song had like a label with it. Um, Watch That Man was New York. Uh, Drive-In Saturday was uh, Seattle to Phoenix. Uh, Panic in Detroit Detroit. Cracked Actors, Los Angeles. Time is New Orleans. Uh, the Gene Genie is Detroit and New York again. The America was an alternative world that he'd been talking about already. And all the the violence and the strangeness and bizarreness that he would sing about in his songs for years, when he went to America, he found like he actually was like in that world. And, and when he was in places like Detroit, they really caught his imagination because it was such a rough foreign city to him that uh, being in America, well, I, I think kind of overwhelmed him. And I, I think you get some of that some of that manicness on this album, with like Panic in Detroit or Cracked Actor, and it really comes through that America had a profound effect on him. And this is, they started recording this while they were on tour in America, right? That is uh, right. Correct. Yeah. But yeah, this definitely, the America definitely had an effect on him that really comes through on, on this album. Uh, their, uh, you know, old friend, um, you know, Visconti was still, uh, you know, hanging out with uh, Mark Bowen. And uh, was Mark Bowen still around in 73? I think so. Yeah. And uh, if not, that's pretty morbid. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it is very morbid. I just know that, that, that Visconti was producing a lot of his stuff during this time, uh, which is why he was not on uh, Ziggy. And um, this being one year later, and then Pinups being a year after that, um, uh, they weren't working together at this point. And so Ken Scott produced this bad boy. Um, in London and in New York, um, correct between the tour between uh, tour stops on the Ziggy tour. And um, in addition to just the uh, Ziggy being uh, like just wrapped up in all the craziness of being a star in America, there is also um, there are definitely flourishes of um, Bowie's thoughts on insanity via his brother Terry. Um, that he's actually quoted that the idea of a lightning bolt, the lightning bolt look that's the, on the cover of the album. It comes from kind of like, at least what his perce- perception of schizophrenia was at, the, at that time. So yeah, the biggest, you know, the biggest, a lot of this, it's all the, it's the Spider Samar's next album, basically. Um, the biggest change is definitely the addition of Mike Garson, who we've talked about on the podcast before, on some Bowie episodes and definitely on some Nine Chanel's episodes that he's worked with both. And he, he joined the band while they were on tour for the first time in the United States. And, uh, the the story behind that is that I, I think uh, you know Bowie just needed to add a new element to 
they were like a straight ahead rock and roll band and he was thinking outside the box and thought bringing in an avant-garde piano player who definitely is not a rock piano player would be an interesting approach to the keyboard work on the next album and it definitely is um yeah. do you have any more details on I, I, he did work uh, 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 uh i'm sorry um there's there's another king king crimson connection here where uh on, in the wake of poseidon uh there was the an avant jazz pianist named keith tippett and bowie really liked the way that sounded and that's why he went after somebody in uh, Mike Garson's style. So Mike Garson, once he joined the crew and they were recording, he uh, was a avid Scientologist and he tried to get the whole, the whole, the whole group to uh, convert. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe it made more sense back then. It was, it was kind of this new hip thing. And there was all sorts of these like little homegrown religions that were happening in the seventies. Um, so, I mean, you know, whatever it does, the, the, the blood of Tom Cruise is pulsating through Mike Garson throughout this whole entire album. It's uh, all sorts of energy from uh, who knows where. Yeah. And other big additions are the saxophones are a little bit less raw because David has a very unique play playing the saxophone on this album. Uh, Ken Fordham and Brian Bucks Wilshaw play the saxophones. And there's a lot of backup vocals on this album. And it's a Juanita Franklin, who was a, also in Transformer. Linda Lewis, who had a hit song called Rock-A-Doodle-Doo, which I have never heard before. Don Bluth movie. And yeah, no, that's 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 Cock-A-Doodle. Um, <laughs> no, it is Rock-A-Doodle. No, it's right. It's rock, it is rock, rock doodle Cock-A-Doodle. That's something else. That's a that's a that's a another tape you've been watching, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> any cockle do <laughs> that's the second mr show reference tonight uh all you better call saul the watchers out there recently there's a mr show alumni in a recent episode and it was not bob odenkirk yep eagle-eyed viewers will catch yep. it <laughs> and uh david's buddy jeffrey mccormack Credited as Mac McCor- Mac Cormac, Mac Tonight Cormac was the other vocalist. Mm. So okay. a little bit more of a fleshed out band on this uh, this one. All right, certainly was. Um, so I I think uh, yeah I know yeah it's while I did nerd out on the storyline to Ziggy Stardust, I just don't see that here. I'm not even gonna try. Um, I think in the spirit of the album, if it's if it's Ziggy getting caught up in fame in America and all that, you know, it could be that that part of the downfall of Ziggy that he describes during the last the last third of the album of the of Ziggy Stardust. This 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 could be like a compressed version of of what of what was going on there. But yeah, there's no storyline to this. So I uh, even I draw a line somewhere and I and there's no there's no fan yeah. fiction to write for this one. No, I think it definitely, the look is still Ziggy Stardust. The sound is still Ziggy Stardust. I think it, you could say, yeah, it's Ziggy touring America, but I don't think there's any kind of overarching story that it's telling at all. Um, not nearly like there is for the Ziggy Stardust album. And another, it, it, it's also worth noting, um, I mean, this album cover is one of the most iconic rock album covers of all time. 
I'd say. And it also is one of the most iconic Bowie looks out of all his looks, uh, the lightning bolt across the face. I actually have a, after Bowie died, I got a lightning bolt tattoo mixed up with the UFO thing. And that came from this album. So that was a, that was designed by Brian Duffy, who did a couple more David, uh, David Bowie album covers. So old Brian Duffy, he's probably getting royalties for t-shirts. Are you uh, comfortable in saying what that lightning bolt represents? I believe for this album, it represented the cracked actor kind of. uh, The duality of mind. Yes. Yes. The duality of mind. Well, like I said, he he thought it was uh, it was also a way to describe like schizophrenia and just like that, uh, you know, well, yeah, the duality, but just uh, what his uh, two halves of of a brain acting independently. I don't know. It's definitely pretty crazy that uh, in between Ziggy Stardust and this, he did the Mott the Hoople, he did Lou Reed's Transformer, and he did Raw, Raw Power. He and then in this album, it was kind of nonstop, and I could see that's how, you know, the obvious stories of drug use that start to come and become more and more of Bowie's story. I I'm sure all this work he was uh, trying to keep things going with a little bit of a added incentives. So, but yeah, this uh, Bowie Bowie was, he was all over the place when Aladdin saying came out and as it much, I can only imagine what being a David Bowie fan would have been like when you went from Z Stardust to this album, which sound very similar in some respects. And then the final product quite a bit different in others must've been, Pretty interesting experience to listen to in the 70s. It was in the 2020s, so we should talk about it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, of where it falls into the lineups. Pinups notwithstanding, you've got Rise and Fog of Ziggy Stardust on one side, and you got Diamond Dogs on the other side. And it's a perfect bridge between both of those records, in my estimation, and I feel that the only way to really dig into it is starting to go track by track. You guys ready for it? Yeah. I should just note that this was my first run through of this whole album. This one was a blind really? spot for me. Obviously, I knew some songs, but for whatever reason, I never just sat down with this one and gave it the old all the way through. So, well, it'll be fun to get a fresh perspective. A blushing virgin when it comes to this album. So, well, not just when it comes to this album is what I'm told. Um, <laughs> you saw the blood tests? Yeah, it's <laughs> too bad. Too bad. It's too bad. Yeah. You make a great father, though. Good for you for stepping in. Yeah. yeah. Um, Use the Amazon delivery man seed. And then I uh, did the rest. <laughs> she two day shipped that uh, thing. A lot of- you betcha. It's time to watch that man. Am I right? Let's let's do it. Fire it up. Fire up the engines, folks.
watch that man getting the album off with a with a rocker with a uh, I've been listening to the Rolling Stones rocker but that's definitely what David was doing and he's not he's not hiding it on a lot of this record and I think they come right out of the gate telling you this is a a, a boogie woogie good time piano saxophone rocking album but watch that man it is true the rolling stone uh comparison is definitely with this album and specifically with this song and uh, on a later song which was an actual rolling stone song um you got a little bit of honky tonk mike garson piano work um, you've got Bowie's vocals buried in the mix, uh, where you've got the guitars really up in the mix, where they can be a little bit overpowering. Um, and then you've got the instruments just kind of running all over each other. Um, it's not a bad song. It's an interesting way to start the album, because uh, you feel like it picks up right where Ziggy sort of left off. I mean, obviously Ziggy left off with Rock and Roll Suicide, but this one says we ain't done yet time to watch that man um so uh yeah it's not a bad song uh it's just one of those songs that i feel i don't hear bowie's voice in this song i hear too much of that stone's influence uh what do you think eric yeah and actually that's looking at the history of the song um uh they mixed it as is and um main man said hey Send it back said, hey, bring Bowie up. This is, you can barely hear him in this song. It's got to sound more like a David song. And uh, they did, and it just it just took all the teeth out of the song. Like, everybody kind of agreed it. It just got very, like, featherweight after they did that. So um, they just, they, they all agreed that having the instruments more forward uh, gave the song more drive. Um, actually, probably a little trick that he, that, that, that the Bowie picked up doing raw power. Um, you know, definitely, um, there's something very garage rock about losing the vocals in the mix, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a fun song. It's a raucous little way to open the album. Um, it is, and this is something I will. I'm just gonna I'm gonna say compared to a lot of his other work, the the topic of songs on this album tend to be sh a little bit in the shallow range. Not all the songs, and there are some extremely glaring exceptions to this, but some of his, his vocal, his vocal, uh, his lyrical delivery is, 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 is kind of shallow. He, he didn't have a lot to say, and he straight up admits it. That's why he started going up to like the William S. Burroughs cut-up method on the very next album, the next studio album. Um, and, uh, and this song is no exception. I mean, it's about partying with the New York Dolls. That's what this song is about. Shaky's based on a member of the New York Dolls. Um, he was hanging out with them a lot during his time in New York. Um, when he talks about Lorraine, he's talking about Syndra, uh, Sin Sirinda Fox, who was a punk fashion icon and hanging out a lot with uh, David Johansson, of course, from um, the uh, uh, Dexter Point, or <laughs> Point Dexter. What was that? What was that? Uh, hot, hot, hot. David Johansson. What was his fucking project called? Buster um... Point Dexter. There you go. Yep. Buster Point Dexter. Yeah. And of course, from Scrooge to fame. Um, it was kind of like uh, a yeah, Buster song... Point Dexter. I made this joke before, but he's the store brand version of Tom Waits. 
Go ahead. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, but his music was all really weird, like conga line, like lounge, like just like <laughs> lounge music. It was his solo stuff. Anyways. He just looks uh, like song, He looks like, yeah. Yeah. This song is just about partying in New York with the New York Dolls, and then Bowie like does something and gets very ashamed and runs out of the party, um, uh, uh, filled with shame. And that's it does like a little walk of shame at the end, and that's that's what it's about. That's what the song's about. Um, not terribly deep, but it's certainly a fun way to start an album. Well, here we go again with Eric getting mad when rock songs are about rock and roll and calling them. You didn't say it yet, but you're, you're this close to saying it's basic, aren't you, Eric? No, I actually, that was not on my list of adjectives for this album. Uh-huh. It's a rock song. It's okay when rock and roll songs are just about rock and roll. Yeah. Sometimes you need that. Yeah, it's absolutely. Absolutely. I, I do in this track, I, I really love the the uh, the backup vocals in this album are great to me. They bring in, there's a lot of depth to them. And the, yeah, yeah sorry, listeners, that, uh, the, that delivery on this song is awesome. I love the backup vocals in this track. I think you nailed it. I, I think at the end where it, it slows down is I'll watch that man. And you got the Garson little piano plinking. Nice little fade out. I think this song has a lot of uh, sonic depth, even though it's not the uh, fucking uh, love and uh, war and peace like Eric wants it to be lyrically. <laughs> I think that the uh, I, I think the production on this album is great. And I think that all the songs for the most part even straight ahead rockers like this they have a lot of just sonic depth to them i think i don't know why i like the production on this album so much i don't know what they did differently um i think it sounds even better produced than uh, ziggy stardust even though it's i think it's the same team um and and you know it was recorded in a few different places too so it shouldn't uh the, the mixing on it though for some reason to me uh, pleasing to my ear I think it's a great start. And this is another song that our friend Lulu covered. Um, it's on the same single of her uh, version of uh, The Main Soul of the World. Latin Sane, 1913 to 1938 to 1970, question mark? The only thing I know for sure very weird 
and the way they do that weird titling there, the 1913, 38 to the 70 question mark, that seems like something Eric would come up with himself. <laughs> and it is definitely, um, you know, David Bowie did just put out a whole concept album about being a space alien and stuff. So he's in, he's into storytelling and yeah, but this is, this song, it's a weird ass song. It's a strange title. Uh, this is this is the beginning of David dabbling with more avant-garde weirdness, and of course having this be a showpiece for Mike Garson's avant-garde piano insanity is a perfect fitting of type of song and musicianship on song. Mm. Can we just like go through the sonic landscape of this song? I'm a big. Fa- I, I'll just get out of the way right now. I think this is my favorite song on the album. This song is so f- so freaking good. Um, but uh, it, it definitely starts, it's like a perfect track too. It's, in a way it's more intense than what came before, but it's not as, it doesn't have the drive. It's a little bit more chill, um, but it has a lot of ambiance and it has um, these weird background sounds that as it starts and you kind of get into the groove of it, it's got a really groovy bass line. Um, they start, it, it gets dizzy. And like you were saying, like it kind of like is like a head change. At some moments, the song just kind of feels like you're, you you got too drunk, stumbled out of a bar, and you're like in a really busy New York street and cars are flying past you, and you're just trying to get your bearings. Um, it definitely is disorienting at times. Um, and the lyrics are are kind of crazy. They, um, uh, they kind of bounce back and forth between this character of... Uh, uh, you know, Ziggy in America and and kind of like maybe it's sometimes feeling doomed and also with young boys going off to war, um, not unlike uh, Search and Destroy, which we talked about in our previous episode. Um, and uh, actually, I only know this because I looked up the video, but when he played this song acoustically at the Bridge Benefit concert that I was at, he actually started by saying, this song is about young boys that uh, you know wanted to go off to war, screw and kill foreigners, and uh, apparently that's that's what he said the song is about. Um, looking at the lyrics itself, um, you know, watching him dash away, swinging an old bouquet, dead roses, sake and strange divine. Uh huh, uh huh. You'll make it. Passionate, bright young things, take him away to war. Don't fake it. It kind of goes back and forth between like lavish description, lavish descriptions of excess, and then like like that youthful energy and then going to war. Um, it's uh, kind of bonkers lyrically, but then we get into the part, the bass just does this repetitive thing over and over again until it pulls you into this like hypnotic groove. And then that Garson piano solo is from another planet. It is not in rhythm with the bass and the drums at all. It's doing it's cat on the keyboard. Like you guys described him to me the first time I heard his name cats on the keyboard for like two minutes. And then in the last 30 seconds, it finally latches on to the rhythm and the groove, and it just ends the song so freaking strong. Um, just a very cool, and you're right, it's one of the first uh, dip of his toes in avant-garde, um, at least since, like, uh, Hunky Dory. Um, but uh, I think it's a very cool song. I got very into the song. Mark? Well, it's true. All of it. Everything that you just said. It was very true. Uh, you got the jazzy avant-garde, uh, Mike Garson doing his little tickling the ivories. You got a little saxophone squawks by way of 
uh, Bill Pullman's character from Lost Highway at the end. Oh, you took that right off of my notes. <laughs> I put that this is the Lost Highway freakout scene. Oh, wow. I mean, between the... Between, yeah, well, between between the saxophone and then just the, the, the piano solo, at that point where he's all... The piano really sold like part of it. He just go dun 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 dun. <laughs> what is going yeah. on here? Yeah, uh, the lights flashing everywhere. It's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, you definitely got little red bats with wings or whatever the fucking yeah. <laughs> song is. Um, <laughs> it's true. So this song is uh, it. It takes you on a journey. If you kind of compare the title track from Ziggy to the title track to here. I appreciate the fact that Bowie is really swinging for the fences. And if you kind of look at where we've gone up to this point, this is Bowie really playing around with that uh, experimental sound. Um, uh, Rolling Stone, their review described the music as hot house orientalism, jagged, dissonant, and daring. What? Yeah. Oh. I'm like, oh. if you <laughs> different times. Yeah, exactly. I'm uh, <laughs> adjusting my collar. I'm like, wow, that's that's solid journalism there, Rolling Stone. So the, did, did the president write that? <laughs> <laughs> I know, China, China. Um, did you? Did you? I, I I am not. I will not watch his goddamn daily briefings. You can't. You can't, man. All but, it does is just like no. Yeah, you can't do it. But today he's. He started talking like a baby when he started. I, I saw a clip of it. On, this is how it happens: is if something, if something is worth reviewing, it'll make its way to Twitter. And he started talking about whatever that malaria uh, pill, uh, the vaccination pill is, or whatever for malaria. And he started talking like he was talking to a baby, where he's like, "Maybe if you want to take the pill, you can. Maybe I will, but it's for you to decide." To take the pill and he started talking like he was talking to a little baby it was so good bizarre. god um yeah anyhow back to, yeah back to, orientalism is definitely in his uh play that's in his back vocabulary song, uh, yeah uh i like i like i like in the towards the end too when everything kind of starts latching together when bowie starts singing uh on broadway on broadway that's kind of like that's what my head was going to like once he gets his bearings he's like oh shit i know where i am i'm on broadway okay that's right now i'm gonna stumble down the street Definitely a... Uh... Well, I mean, I think that's a cool uh, thing you pointed out because I think a lot of this album I'll bring up is made for the stage. So this this, this song is too, I think. Right. Um, yeah, this is a wild song, man. It's, a, I think, a pretty... Take, it takes some big old brass to, to make this your track too on an album that came out in 1973. I mean, this is, this is the start of him not giving, like... The, the Berlin trilogy is really him being like, whatever, I'll do whatever I want. I, I think there's a little bit of that going on here with this title track. Yeah. And Mike Garson was just increasing his theta levels like nobody's business <laughs> on this song. Um, and uh, he did. Garson has said that he gets asked about this song in interviews more than anything else he's ever done. This is his most uh, referenced uh, piece of music. So, I've listened to this album. Bah enough times in my life um but i didn't really i don't think I, I i noticed how weird this song is until i was driving with my wife recently listening to this album and i really was like 
Well, that piano solo is really going for it. <laughs> when you're when you're with somebody that doesn't does not listen to weirdo music like we do, you you notice what they're probably hearing yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like wow. I bet she's enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that song. So shall we go to uh, Drive-In Saturday? So that was Drive-In Saturday, and uh, the song is heavily influenced by that 1950s doo-wop sound. It is a very strong song, and if Ziggy Stardust goes to America, he's absolutely going through the Americana 1950s rock sound. Um, you got David Sanborn playing tenor sax on this Um has a very song, a strong, excuse me, song structure, and the chorus is really great. Um, you can absolutely start to see the foundations of uh, where Young Americans is starting to pop up in his brain. Um, I, I really, really like this song. I'm interested to see what you guys think about this one. The thing about this one is, I think I read about it before. I, I mean, I'm sure I've heard it before. Once I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, I know the song. But I actually read about it before I listened to it. And the story he's telling in the song is wonderful. It's actually like a some kind of, you know, Black Mirror type story. Apparently when he was on tour and he was driving, he was taking a train and it passed over like just barren land between Seattle and Phoenix. He got the idea for it. And it's just about this future where, you know, intimacy is dead a couple tries to have have sex and they have no idea, you know, what to do about it. Like, uh, let me put my arms around your head. Do da. -ah. Gee, it's hot. Let's go to bed. Um, they can't remember how to do it. So, so they, uh, they have to like, uh, happens to the best. Go to this, that's right. They go into a, dr <laughs> a drive-in theater and, uh, just watch porno movies to remember how to do it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I guess it's a cautionary tale. Uh, this day and age when 90% of my social interactions are happening over Zoom um, or, or business interactions are happening over Zoom, I guess I could see how we could get, get to that point where people forget forget how to uh, you know, be intimate. But um, uh, he originally wrote this song for Mott the Hoople uh, and they rejected it. And he was so angry that he shaved his eyebrows off and they were still shaved off for the, uh, the album cover. So... Um, <laughs> that's why he did yes, that he was so apparently he was so angry and distraught that they refused to do this song that he shaved his eyebrows off in a drug-fueled tantrum well, according to yeah, apparently uh, ian hunter sorry go on yeah the, the, ian hunter uh didn't want to oh uh, you know they, they, their big hit was a bowie song so we didn't want to have that happen twice over and so their next sing single was a Monta hoople written song called <laughs> 
Honolulu boogie. <laughs> so I just uh, the old Honolulu boogie. Yeah, um, yeah. That that whole the, the lyrics. You know, it, it's funny that it's such a classic sounding song. It's a great sounding song. And then when you dig into the lyrics, and yeah, it's exactly what Eric is talking about. Is that you know. It, it, it the toxic avenger forgot how to have sex so he goes to the fucking the drive-in theater um is the chorus does it say his name was always buddy is that the, the, what he's saying there in the chorus i don't have the lyrics in front of me um so i'll say yes <laughs> <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me and we're uh, uh our son has been wanting to get a cat named buddy he's just for like months now and so I just find it funny that that lyric is his name is always Buddy. Yeah, that's that's the lyrics. His name um, was always Buddy, Buddy, and he'd yeah. shrug and ask to stay. She'd sigh like a twig, the Wonder Kid, and turn her face away. Yeah, um, I, I I I love this song. I think it is pretty perfect. It was actually a single, which I had no idea until I read that tonight. Because when I think of David Bowie singles, I don't think of this song. It's not in any greatest hits compilation. Uh, I had no idea that it was a single. Um, the register that he sings the chorus is in is very similar to what he will use uh, throughout the Diamond Dogs album. Um, I'm sorry, the verses. The way he sings on the verses is very similar to how he sings for the majority of Diamond Dogs, which I think is, uh, to Mark's point, Diamond Dogs is kind of creeping in on on this album. Uh, there's some There's some hand claps and some saxophone work that is great. And I love that 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 drive in Saturday. Yeah. Um, I think it's like really, the end really... is also a yeah. big highlight. Yeah. But he does some good vocal yeah, stuff the, on the, here. Yeah. He does. You know, there's some good vocalizations, and Mick Ronson's doing some good work as he. I'll bring up some more specific Mick Ronson stuff as it goes on. So far, Mick Ronson's been doing the level best, great Mick Ronson work on the whole album. And um, yeah, there's actually a, a bootleg of this somewhere from 1972 where he played an acoustic version of this by himself in Florida that I need to dig up. I've read about it. I can't find it. Rarely am I a person that needs to hear a bootleg, but I think a solo acoustic version of this song would be wonderful to hear. So I'm going to try to find that. Yeah, it's good. It's uh, I think there he's incepting a little plastic soul in the song i think he'll uh he's got an idea here that he'll he's planting a seed for and will see to fruition in the next album it was actually written as a follow-up single for mop the hoople who'd had some considerable success with another song that i'd written for them called all the young dudes well they in their wisdom decided the time had come for them to write their own single so it was given back to me um I was so annoyed that one night in Florida, I shaved my eyebrows off. <laughs> you think I'm joking? I actually am not joking. I got very drunk and shaved my eyebrows off. I was so annoyed that they didn't do this song. Taught them a lesson. <laughs> it's really taught them a lesson. And uh, here it is for you now. And so you have that nice uh, apocalyptic romantic song. And it goes right into just a, a rave up of a rock blaster. Panic in Detroit. It's hot. Let's go to bed. Don't forget to turn on the light. 
six years before this album was released um, there was a uh, there were riots in Detroit um, and it, a lot of it due, due to social upheaval um, and David Bowie um, got a lot of his imagery for the song from Iggy Pop's descriptions uh, Iggy Pop and the Stooges were rocking out in Detroit and they and the MC5 were part of this like scene of garage rock that called themselves that were aligned with the white panthers and the white panthers were just white allies to the black panthers um, which were huge at the time and um specifically uh as they're talking about this um they're talking about this guy that's basically like uh che, che guerrera but the the kind of like the white panther version is uh was was the leader of the national people's gang um and like, funny enough, uh, they were all ingrained, like MC5 would open for Black Panther rallies. Um, and I think like we could probably pause here for a minute and talk a little bit about MC5. Um, you know, I think I was introduced to them through Kick Out The Jams and uh, which that live, that, there's only a live version of that song, which I also love that they only released a live version on their studio album because that song is just infectious fun. Um, but their their discography is worth a listen. They have some awesome songs like like Miss X and uh, and uh, just a lot of really good really good rockers throughout their their, their career. How do you guys feel about MC5? I'm so uh, they're a blind spot for me. You know, I've absolutely heard Kick Out the Jams um, when I was going through and at the drive-in phase, probably in my early the mid 20s um yeah i definitely needed to give them a little bit more of a day in court because the influence there was so strong uh maybe it's just the afro that made me want to think about <laughs> the white man fro yes. um but right. yeah mc5 that's that's a band that i really need to spend a little bit more time with they don't have a lot a lot of a lot of releases um i think Rain, wayne kramer was one of the, the leads of that band yeah um but um, even if you just pick up like their their greatest hits or something like that, you're just gonna hear a lot of gems on that. Um, but yeah, so they were part of that, and the Stooges were a part of that, and Iggy Pop kind of relayed this whole 1967 riot 
situation to uh, to Bowie, and Bowie wrote a song around it. And we've got Panic in Detroit, which a lot of it is about the social upheaval, you know, things kind of falling apart at the seams in Detroit, but also this leader of a movement who kind of misses out on the movement. Once the, the riots happen, he's like stuck in his room. Um, and that's what the lyrics are about. Um, but there's some great imagery talking about kind of this man leading a movement to like what it's like to be in school at the time where teacher like cowering in the corner while everything's falling apart. Um, but music in the song is, is pretty incredible. Um, the, uh, obviously the guitar and the bass are doing their thing, but the drums are insane. There is no, if you listen to it, there is no snare drum. There is, there is very little cymbal work. It doesn't even sound like a drum set was used. You have like three different sets of bongos and like a tom and like two toms and like a, basically a drum circle that just sets this this really crazy almost salsa beat in the background while this uh, garage rock riff happens over it. Um, I'm a big fan of this song. I, I, I think it's great. Um, I also kind of like the subject matter and that era of Detroit. Um, but this, this song I, I, I find musically extremely interesting and a great follow-up. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's an interesting song. Um, you, you start with that chunky guitar riff um, and get a little bit of that salsa percussion that run. It gives me that uh, Credence kind of running through the jungle kind of feel. Um, song has a pretty good descending melody, but doesn't really have a whole lot of dynamics. That's my only probably detractor on this song. Um, you get the gist of what this song is all about probably within 30 seconds in because it doesn't really go anywhere besides that kind of bow diddly beat. Uh, but it does give you that very claustrophobic feeling that he was going for that, that sense of panic and anxiety. Um, I do like this song. Um, it's not one of my favorites on the record, but I would have to say that it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, see, what do you think? That, uh, that, that baseline going for a walk is something for the people. And uh, yeah. I love the backing vocals that are in total, like definitely Motown Supremes thing. Like it's almost doing like a CNC music factory, like, ah, 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 ah. like the, the, the backing vocals towards the end are, are amazing. Um, but anyways, yeah, Steve. Yeah. I love this. I love this song. Um, it opens up with those, those, those awesome conga drums, which I just, also very uh rolling stones ish uh the rolling stones uh in their you know starting towards the middle of their no early on and towards the end of the 60s and the 70s and then on to today they have a lot of fleshed out arrangements with a lot of different percussion and i think those conga drums definitely would find themselves at home uh somewhere on a uh let it bleed song um the funny thing about those drums, the reason they're there is that Woody Woodmansey actually he he did not want to play the drum beat that uh, Bowie came up with, which was kind of a, a Bo Diddley type beat, and uh, he said it was too obvious. And him and him and, and Bowie had a little bit of a, a tiff over it. And Woody was actually the first of the Spiders to get thrown out of the band a few months later. So I don't know if those things are too tied together, but. Uh, that's why they, they decided to use uh, those conga drums and they had some other guys come in and play them. And uh, yeah, I, I think the song has a very good, uh, again, it's the, the type of song they're trying to play and the subject matter go together very well. 
I think this song does sound like the you, you could picture like riots going on behind the the band playing. It's a very uh, you know a lot of forward momentum, a lot a lot of, a lot of controlled chaos in this track, and the backup vocals are great. There's there's some more great vocalizations from those backup singers on this one, and I. I think it's it's damn near perfect track. I love it. And uh, in addition to the the back of vocals, there's like this 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 soul scatting going on. This you know this ah 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 ah. And when you listen to it, you might think, where have I heard this before? Well, if you listen to the Black Tie White Noise album, uh, what the hell is that one song that we actually all really liked off that album? Uh, something tonight. Miracle Goodnight. Miracle Goodnight. Yeah, yeah. Miracle Goodnight. I was actually thinking of something else off that album, but it's it's a good time to listen to that little uh, jaunty sound from Miracle Goodnight. <laughs> Went to that same effect on Miracle Good Night with some weird backup vocals that did not work out nearly as well on Miracle Good Night, but work a lot better here. Yeah, it's a good perspective. Um, the more we talk about this song, it does make me appreciate a little bit more because at face value, it feels like okay, Bowie is uh, shifting between two gears on this record. You're straight ahead rockers, and you're more. Uh, let's play a little jazz. So it's, I, I like the let's play a little jazz a little bit more than his uh, uh, his straightforward rockers on here to a certain extent. Um, but it, I do uh, like hearing your guys' comments on this. It gives me a better appreciation for it. That's what it's all about. And uh, the 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 lyric, the, the he showed up looking like Che Guevara, uh, or whatever that exact lyric is the story behind that is that he ran into somebody he used to go to school with and this guy shows up years later at one of his shows backstage and turned i guess somebody some londoner he went to school with turned into a big drug dealer in south america and uh he he came to he came to meet david backstage at one of his shows dressed up like che guevara and bowie was gobsmacked and he's like i can't believe it him you know, it was kind of like, you know, egg? Now, cracked actor. Song with a great title that possibly the album cover represents. A song that has some honking on Bobo and a hitch in its step. Cracked actor, Eric, what do you think? I mean, this song has a catchiness to it that's undeniable. That chorus is so damn sleazy. 
and so singable. You know, crack, baby, crack, show me your reel. Smack, baby, smack. Is that all you feel? Suck, baby, suck. Give me your head. Before, before you start professing that you're knocking me dead. Um, it's a, it's yeah, I, undeniable. Song itself is about, um, you know, it's definitely his L.A. song. And it's, you know, definitely about a film star who's into a little bit of debauchery, who's hitting rock bottom and getting a, a prostitute and just kind of explaining their connection. Um, just song talking about going from Hollywood highs to gutter lows. I appreciate that. Um, it's got a great riff to it. I This isn't one of my top songs on this album, but it is quality and there is i always think of the live version where he's singing into a school like hamlet which i appreciate yeah no i like that i like that that singing to the school like hamlet thing that he does um yeah i, I did definitely mick ronson's got like a, a blues guitar riff thing going on this i think this album is probably the it shows you the the breadth of mick ronson's talents there's a lot of different styles of playing he does on it um and a lot of that's because it it's not as sonically bubblegummy glammy as Ziggy is all the way through. Um, and that's not fair to Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy Stardust does have those uh that whole section where it's like uh proto-punk songs. But I guess there's just, there's more there's more of these bluesy Rolling Stones type moments on this album that give the the guitar players given a little more to do, I feel. And it's definitely you see that on this one. And Mick Ronson's still uh, arranging a lot of the, you know, one of the major, you know, crafters of the arrangements on all these songs. So he's doing great work. And this is another song where he does great work. And this is a kind of a definitive Bowie song to me. Uh, it's not one of my all time top 20 favorite Bowie songs. It's probably 22. Um, it definitely though. I, I just, I, I think that when I think of David Bowie, uh, when I think of the image that he had in the seventies, I think of this song quite a bit. Um, I love the live version that's in the Ziggy Stardust movie and you can't help, but just tap your foot to this track. Um, the baseline, it runs up and down the fretboard quite a bit. The, the bass player is definitely do, doing some, some magic on it. It's just, it's just a good rocker. It's got some, it's got some woohoos in it and some cat calls and, I think it's a great rock song, and yeah, it's 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 kind of a story of a, you know, down and down and out in L.A., which is, which uh, we we've all been there. And one one thing I do like about this song is that, um, some songs in this album, the the approach that Marilyn Manson took to glam on Mechanical Animals, I hear some of that in this tr in this track. Oh boy, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alpha and the Omegas or something like that. Um, I could absolutely see Marilyn Manson giving this a, uh, a spin um, in terms of his essential where he was getting that influence. I, I do agree that this is glam rock at the height of its powers. Um, I also think, I'm of two minds, that if this did happen to land on Ziggy, it would have been considered probably a mid-tier song um, because of where it's kind of surrounded on this record. 
I feel that it is elevated because he doesn't really dabble into that glam so uh, sound too often here. Um, and uh, you definitely get a little bit of Bowie's uh, Bobo honking on this one, um, where some reviewers said that it revealed little else except that Bowie's capabilities with a mouth harp are decidedly limited. Um, but I do enjoy this song, and to Steve's point, um, some of these studio versions that I would hear, actually I heard first on the Ziggy Stardust motion picture soundtrack before I picked up this album proper. Um, so I was a little bit more used to the live recording, and I feel it gives it a little bit more punch. Um, it's not a bad track. I, I, I do enjoy Cracked Actor. You know, when, he, uh, when they did the Serious Moonlight tour in the 80s, they brought back the skull. Well, I'm glad to hear that. All right. Well, I see that uh, Eric is yawning, so it's time that we check our watches <laughs> for the time as we listen to the song Time. Yeah, Eric, um, do you use the, the mute button at all on your Zoom meetings? So they, your coworkers rate higher than some of your oldest friends, huh? I just feel like you'd appreciate my little nuances between between phrases more than uh, my coworkers. The ideas are coming fast and furious for Eric. Yeah, well, you know, you give me more work to do when I edit this thing is something that your coworkers could also relate to. So next song is Time. Ah, <laughs> uh, Time. I feel like Time is the name of a song by a lot of bands. I feel like, you know, the only Rolling Stones have a song called Time and Tom Waits has a song called Time. Maybe. Time's on my side uh, for Rolling Stones. And then, uh, of course, Pink Floyd's Time, ticking away uh, all the moments of a new day as you fritter and waste the hours in a logging hat way. Yes. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh, yeah, and then... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Steven, do the Roger. Uh, you, okay, Steven's going to do the Richard Wright parts. I'm going to do the David Gilmore parts. So here we go. One, two, three. He's fucking. He's yawn. He's yawning. Then he's bringing up subjects and getting pissed off when you flesh them out. I don't know what's wrong with him tonight. He's got a train to catch. We wrote this when um, the drummer of the New York Dolls, Billy Mer Mercia, died. He died. And um, it wasn't Buster Poindexter in the New York Dolls. 
Yes! Where, where were you? Where were you that whole conversation? Uh, probably Lou God. taking a piss. Yes. All right. David Johansson is Buster Multiple. Poindexter. Yes, David Johansson. <laughs> I mean, we even had, not only tonight did we discuss that, we discussed it in another oh episode before. Was that uh, in the year glam uh, glam special? Yes. <laughs> as uh, as captain and co-creator of the show, I listened to all my own episodes. Just trust me on this one, folks. Um, okay. <laughs> Just keeping us honest. Go ahead, Eric. Yes, yes. <laughs> all right. So this is a song that I think a lot of people, it's a, it's a subject matter. You realize time is running out and you are seeing your contemporaries dying. And that's what the song is about. And it's doing from the perspective of a rock star of, of, of Ziggy Stardust in America. You know, he's looking around people on Quaaludes and red wine, um, you know, dropping dead. And it's, you know, it doesn't, it's pretty surface level for the topic of the song, but um, it's fun. What a fun thing to throw back to our first season is that, that clip from uh, the self-destruction part three is the uh, falls wanking to the floor. And that comes from the song falls wanking to the floor. Somebody that falls while they masturbating to the floor dead. <laughs> it's a ridiculous lyric, but I enjoy it. Um, and that's, yeah, that's what the song is about. It does have a jazzy feel to it. It's, it's, it's definitely more along the lines of the, the artsy, um, avant-garde and, uh, Mark Ronson, uh, Mark, Mick, Mick Ronson has a hell of a ghostly solo. I, I just feel like his solo is very haunting in the song. Um, it's got some good moments. Mm. Um, I'm not crazy about the la di dee dahs Feels a little unfinished in that regard. Um, but I do, I, I, I enjoy the song. This song is probably my favorite track on this album, which is kind of a 180 because it has such a feel that you would finding the cabaret and I'm uh, on record on this very show saying, I don't have any time for that. Just see Bowie's re uh, interpretation of the Alabama song and the entire ball soundtrack that he did. Um, so you got that Jock's Jockus Brell, uh, Bertolt Brecht, Kurt Vile uh, sound burlesque vamp is what was classified. Um, but there's so many dynamic are you having a stroke? What's I know going it on really does seem that way when I'm reading off my fucking notes. Uh, <laughs> um, but you, you have Mike Garson a little bit more corralled into uh, what Bowie's trying to do. You get the avant-garde jazz style uh, with the element of show music, but I do like the song. I, I, there's just a something just does it for me about like his performance and how he's just really just vamping it up um i i i like this song what can i say you got mick ron uh, mick garson swooping in with that guitar work um and i love the bowie catching his breath uh with to great effect um yeah i think it's a timeless song i like this song yes it might be my favorite song on the album or that might be another song but it's up there I've always liked the um the the live version. Um yeah, Garson, like you said, on my notes I have that he's much more subdued on this track. They um he's still doing a lot of cool stuff, but he 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 they they kept the leash on him. 
Um, it is a stage song, and it reminds me of how we've discussed before that Bowie, the actor, is always close by, and you can hear him acting uh, uh, when he sings this song. It, this sounds like it was made for the stage. This sounds like John Lovett's acting is happening when you listen to it. Right at the dramatic pauses that you talk about, like when he's he's checking when he's catching his breath, uh, definitely it, it, it gives you that that vibe. And in the live video for this one, I love when he says, you know, I, I check my watch and it's you know, nine after five, whatever the lyric is, and he he points at his wrist and it's uh, it's perfect. Um, yeah, that part you speak of, Mark or Eric, the haunting guitar solo, it's very good. Uh, uh, Mick, Mick Ronson using the, his instrument to convey the subject matter of the song on the live version of it. He would usually jump out of nowhere on top of Bowie. And you see that in the Ziggy Stardust movie too. It's pretty fun. Uh, some of my favorite Mick Ronson work is that guitar solo. Ronson and Garson, they play off each other pretty well in this track. I think they kind of go back and forth and kind of follow each other at times. And, uh, I think I would have liked to hear more albums with both of them on them, but we didn't not, we didn't really get those. And the uh, the the spiders they do really good backup vocals in this song, fleshing everything out. Uh, the 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 vocalizations of the da da da, and I actually like the lot of d's, the lot of da's at the end, and the I I I like them because. The section of that song, the piano pounding sounds so full that they work together, I think, very well. The song climaxes incredibly. And I feel like almost uh, that you kind of know that, that maybe the Spiders, when they were recording this song, it has kind of a finality to it. I think that they knew the time was running out as a band together. And I think they, everybody gave their all for this track. And it comes across quite, quite, quite well. I think one thing that's um, cool. Sorry, uh, go on, Steve. I, I was just going to uh, just, I have a lot of notes on this song. I, I love the lyrics to this song. Um, they're not too complex, but one line that he, the, the keeping dark is hateful. I had so many dreams. I had so many breakthroughs. His delivery of that and then Mick Ronson's guitar work right behind it is kind of anthemic and sad at the same time. It's just, that's why I, I think it was kind of a eulogy for the spiders. So guilt for dreaming. It's a great song. I, uh, if there was a song that could thematically fit on Ziggy, I think it's this because death or time is haunting Ziggy on the second side of that entire album. In fact, it's referenced in the, the rock and roll suicide, the last song. So, um, I just, if there was a connection, a story connection to make, this is the only song that really does it um, to the, to the Ziggy Stardust album. I, but I appreciate that. Interesting comment that Bowie made live uh, when he was talking to an audience in January of 1973. Before this song, he said, I've written a new song on the new album, which is just called Time. And I thought it was about time. And I wrote very heavily about time and the way I feel about time at times. And I played it back after we recorded it, and I, I said, my God, it was a gay song. And I had no intention of writing anything at all gay. 
when I listened to it back, I just could not believe it. That's very interesting that he thought that this was a gay song for some reason. I don't know what he means by that, but that's what he said on stage. (laughs) I guess that's a way to, that's a way to look at it, you know, but, uh, you know, time is a, uh, is a uh, power bottom, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I love, you know, the way it, it's got, it, it builds really well. And then they, they allow things to get quiet and Garson has a little piano plink. And I love my songs where I feel like they let the piano end the song fading out. And you can imagine Garson closing the piano. And then it goes into another great song. But before that great song, let's see what those great minds were discussing back in 1973. Tony, this is the greatest discovery I've made, is this fellow and his piano. And now, you know, here we just were, the, 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 the Ziggy Stardust and the Spider from Mars, and... We, we wrote this rock opera. It was great. And there was these operatic parts and there was some string sections here and everyone did their best. But so boring, Tony Dole, predictable. This cat plays the piano like a cat. And you never know where it's going, Tony. This, 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 this man hits one key to the next key. And the melody is still there, even though it sounds like absolute nonsense. It's beautiful, Tony. I'm thinking, I'm thinking that, you know, my lyrics have become as staid as Ziggy Stardust. And now, with the Latin saying, and this fellow's piano playing, that is how I will put words together. You see, Tony, in the 1950s, there was doo-wop. But right now, there's the Rolling Stones. And if you take the two of them together and put them in the blender and have a cat dance on them, that is rock and roll. Don't you think, Tony? Oh, Dave, hey, listen, this has been a great conversation. You're telling me about your new album. Um, I'm sorry I can't be there. Listen, I, you know, Mark Bowen's got me. We were just at the Piccadilly Fair today, buying some stuff, planning, planning his next album. Sorry I can't be there. I know you got Ken Scott. Listen. That guy knows how to tweak your knobs. He's fine. Uh, I don't think he's an artist like I am, but hey, whatever. Listen, you got him. Great. But what? Well, yeah, what, what are you talking Tony, about, no, man? Tony, your, your sound is all over the place, man. Like, like, what are you? Okay, what are your songs about? That's what I'm. What, what are your songs about? I mean, we we used to write to a theme. What do you? What's your theme? What are you talking about? The piano across America, Tony. Ah, the piano across America. Okay. Yes, yes, All but right. also, no, but yes, a lightning bolt on a piano across America. There you go. I got it. So you've got songs about Tony, pianos? No, but, but think about it, Tony. A piano with a cat in America with a rolling stone at a movie theater, but there are ladies in flamenco and insanity for young lads. That is the theme of this album. Mm. It all it all makes sense, right? Hey, you know, listen, hey, listen, I support you. I, I, I'm sure it's great. Uh, me and Mark will give it a spin when you release it, I'm sure. 
Um, maybe one day you and I get back together and record something uh, better. But hey, listen, it sounds, it sounds okay, but I got to tell you, man, it's all over the place. And that's, that's what I worry about. Listen, is it Angie? Because listen, when you, get, when you get all wrapped up in Angie, you, you kind of lose focus, man. I mean, I'm just, I can't help. I, I'm thinking back when we did Man Who Sold the World. You listen, usually you record our conversations when we're talking about making it. You didn't even, I produced, I put my heart and soul in that thing. And you didn't even record us talk, talking about it. Uh, let's, don't you remember making it? Making what? The Man Who Sold the World. The Man Who Sold the World. Was that... Was that the, that was a, that was a, a Yes album, I believe, right? No! Ah, ah, Mark, look, that is a riff, man. Oh, man, you are shredding. I don't even know. That's a minor key. You are making black magic there, man. Black magic. Dave, listen. Wait, wait, hold on. What's, what's going on in here? I was just in the other room with my wife, Angela Bowie. Dave, listen to what Mick's doing over here. Oh, my God. He is shred. Listen to that. I haven't heard shreds like that before, man. He is. Yeah, listen. He is doing a magical spell over here. Can you hear that? Uh, very interesting. Yes, I'm sure that Mick will be doing better things in the future. You know, maybe with me when we're uh, in America or something. But right now, what are you all doing in my house? This is a uh, London this is town, and I I just got married to Angie Bowie. Listen, well, uh, take that scarf off for a minute. And put on this witch's hat because, Dave, this is heavy metal, man. This is the future. Listen, uh, we, we, we write in minor keys. We, we make it loud and crunchy. Plenty of room for solos. And you, you got to start thinking in other, in other terms. You're not just talking about love. You're not talking about artist communities. You're talking, you're, what you got to be thinking about is God and the devil and, and, and fucking the devil. All right? That's where your brain's got to be at right now, Dave. Are we making another record? Right now? We're making one right this very minute. It's called, it's called, I don't know what it's called. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's, uh, it's got about nine songs and they're heavy as hell. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll look into this new album that you think you're recording. I've, uh, I'm, I'm going to go hang out with Angela Bowie and you can keep doing your thing in here. I don't know if anything will come to it or if it'll be very memorable at all. Uh, we'll find out when... It gets sold to the world. Hmm. I mean, see, Dave, that was a great conversation. Why couldn't you have recorded that? I like. Uh, listen, you you need to focus, man. That's a, that, that proof is in the pudding, man. Focus. Okay, you got some ideas for this Aladdin saint. I guess you're making an album about a genie cat that jam dances on a piano. I okay. There's a story there somewhere, man. I just listen. I just implore you, focus on it. You know, when you when you get that focus, give me a call. I'll tell Mark to go on to go on a holiday, and, and we'll make it. We'll make it. We'll make another album. Uh, Tony, I am I am not even sure what you're going on about right now with Mark. All I know is that I have a man here that lets his cat dance on the piano, and it is music to my ears, Tony. Better than any album you may have made years ago with someone. When I was married to Angela Bowie in the other room. Well, here we are again, folks. In the middle of another wonderful episode of Pod Like a Hole. Your podcast dissecting every David Bowie album. 
for that. Every Nine Inch Nails album. And in the future, some other albums. Also, we've dived down the rabbit holes of Iggy Pop. And I'm sure you really enjoyed that sojourn into 90 minutes of Metal Gear Solid talk. Yes, that's what you've come here for. Video game talk between two men who have nothing better to do while we're in quarantine. Yes, quarantine, cave life. A pod like a whole is still here for you. We were here for you before COVID-19, and hopefully we'll be here for you after COVID-19. What might help with that is if you donate to Patreon slash pod like a whole. Become a Patreon member. Help Eric with his bills. Eric is part of the education system. You know he doesn't make that much money. And if he gets sick, you know, GoFundMe's aren't going to be able to take care of COVID. At least I don't think so. But I can tell you this much. Patreon will bridge the gap between Eric's next GoFundMe and trying to beat COVID. Eric's been here for us for many years. He's always been here to fall down when we need a laugh. And let's pick him up now after he's fallen down with COVID. Possibly. I don't know. I don't think he has it. I'm not making light. But I do know that Eric hasn't left his house in weeks. None of us have. And that man falls down all the time. So if it's not a disease that we need to make sure we use Patreon for to help Eric out with. It's the fact that he can hardly walk straight. It's not just because he's always drinking. It's because the man just has trouble with his balance. You see, Eric has a bum hip. He's had a bum hip since he was like seven. He's been an old man forever. There is a staircase in Eric's house. We need to make sure that we take care of him, his medical bills, for when he falls down again, Patreon forward slash pod like a hole. Do it for Eric. All right. Well, then it gets into a track we've discussed before. The Prettiest Star. Um, so I'll go ahead and start because I know that you guys are going to offer a counterpoint. I don't know what to really make of this song. It's not a bad melody. That opening guitar lick does get stuck in your head. Um, but I'm still just not going to consider it a lost treasure. Um, I have a lot of times I do forget what this song sounds like by the time I finish not only the song, but the record. Uh, it just doesn't stick to my ribs like some of the other ones do. Um, I'm sure Eric will give us the backstory a little bit of how it relates to our dear old label, Darum, um, but I'll let him talk about that. Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't really have a whole lot to say on this one, to be honest with you. So give me a counterpoint, Steve. Tell me why it's a great song that uh, deserves a part in the pan- pantheon. Well, that guitar, that guitar riff, that little guitar lick, that with the doo-wop, wop-wop-ba-doos behind it. Do it for me. This is going back to another 1950s throwback kind of uh, the, the, the looking back to the, the Americana thing. Uh, what makes it better than the version we talked about before, which was either a B side or an actual track off Space Oddity, I cannot remember. It was a it was a B side. It was a okay, B-side. and uh, I think that one had did that one have uh, Mark Bolin on it? This one has uh, Mick Ronson on it, which I think his arrangements are very good on this track. Um, the the pianos on the second verse with the with the doo wops work really well. They layer in some piano work, but what does it for me on this? To answer Mark's question, is the saxophone. I think that I love it. I think it's a, it's got a little bounce to it. It's a happy little song. I don't know if if it's supposed to be about anything happy. Um, we're waiting for Eric to tell us all about the lyrics. But uh, Mark, to answer your question, the saxophones. Yeah. I mean, that's one area that does give this song a little bit of texture, but uh, I feel that it's maybe used in a better way elsewhere. I don't know. You're right, though. I mean, um, can't forget those saxophones now that you mention it. Eric? I think I think this is a better version than the B-side from Space Oddity um, because that one was essentially just acoustic guitar and vocals. This this has a little bounce to it, like you said. I wrote in my notes, it's, it's a fun little twee Euro pop song. Um, uh, this is, I guess this is his most corduroy of all the songs on this album. Um, it's, uh, that being said, I would actually agree with you, Mark, that by the time I finished this album, I didn't even remember I listened to it again. Um, while it is catchy while you're listening to it, it's not, it doesn't really stick its hooks in as far as a memorable song. Um, I do agree with Steve that the saxophone work is fantastic in this album, uh, in this song. Um, but not a great fit for this album. It just just feels off and it doesn't uh, make an impression. And so and the song is about happy subject matter. He's falling head over heels with Angie Bowie uh, during this time. And the song is about her. So. And yeah, this song was written in 1969. To, right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, that's when it was all getting hot it, and heavy. It is still yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was Mark Bolin. And then Visconti said that the original version, when they recorded that day, you could cut the atmosphere in the studio like a, with a knife. They just, uh, Bowie and, Bowie and Bolin had issues. Frenemy. Yeah, no, I think Pretty Star is pretty good. I, um, after, I, I think after the emotional wallop that is time, it's a, it's a good little come down before you get another rave up with Let's Spend the Night Together.
Let's make love, love, love. And then you get the just cosmic orgasm that then occurs. Um, it's, I feel like it's more, it's faster when you, they play it live. Uh, I mean, you get a little bit of, if uh, Rolling Stones was on uh, the stage with Velvet Underground at the same time, um, you get Bowie's, I mean, this is essentially uh, the same sort of recording style that they did on Watch That Man with Bowie's vocals buried in the mix. Um, it's campy, fun, but I don't know if I necessarily feel that it needs to be here. Maybe it needs to be on pinups, and this is maybe what gave him the idea to do pinups. Hmm. Um I don't know. It's I'm indifferent. It's uh, it's completely harmless, but I, I just don't really care about it. Eric. Yeah, I I mean, is it harmless? <laughs> is it harmless? It it, it, it it sounds great, and I love. I, I totally felt the same way, and I'm a big Velvet Underground fan, and I loved. I I totally agree with what you said. Where they kind of turned that stone song into a garage rock song and added this like avant-garde noise over the top, which I appreciate. And, and when they play it live, it is got a kick to it. I appreciate it. But the Rolling Stones have haunted this whole album. The first song sounds like a stone song. They reference, you know, people just need to look in Mick Jagger in the eyes before they start doing it and, and drive up, drive in Saturday. Um, and then they cover it. I mean, it's, it's fine. But Bowie's definitely leaning maybe even a little too heavy on the stones for this album. Um, I ultimately find this song about this inclusion about as forgettable as the previous track. Um, But when I listen to it, it doesn't bother me until I think about, you know, how much he's relying on the stones for this album. Um, But uh, it has a nice sound to it. Well, I'm in the minority here. I enjoy this cover quite a bit. It's one of the few times where I like a studio version. Well, that's not true. But in this case, I do like the studio version more than the live version. Um, yeah, I don't have much to say. I mean, it's a Rolling Stones cover. Sound like a Rolling Stones song. It's, uh, you know, it's the beginning of a wonderful relationship that'll culminate one day and everyone shouting, Tokyo! But yeah, you know, it might actually, even though I, I am uh, not as cold on it as you two are, it probably is the low point of the record. And I think it gets better with the next track. We'll see if Eric's yawning again. I won't be for the Gene Genie. like a reptile she love him she love him but just for a short while she'll scratch in the sand let go of his hands he says he's a beautician sells you nutrition keeps all your dead hair for making up underwear poor little greenie Ooh. much like cracked actor i consider a definitive bowie song 
I think you have another definitive Bowie song in this album with Gene Genie. Uh, I think it's, yes, it's, it's, it's another Rolling Stones type track, and yes, it's got some harmonicas on it, but you can't deny that, 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 that just that Mick Ronson guitar sleaze on this track is excellent. And the way that he, 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 uh, he, he, he's kind of singing about Iggy pop, I think on this track without being too blatant about it. I mean, the Gene genie, the man in the man, if Iggy pop wasn't wearing jeans, he was wearing leather pants. And I definitely think it's about Iggy pop. It's kind of, it's kind of even repetitive in a, in a Stooges type of way, but not basic as Eric might say about a song like that. Um, I'm a fan of the Gene Genie. I don't think this song is basic. I think, and it's not just the fact that this was a big hit, but this song feels like Bowie's whole, whole personality is wrapped up in this song, uh, even though it's not even about him. And I can't say that about a couple other tracks on this album where Bowie just kind of get, gets lost in the process. Like this, uh, the, it is very repetitive. It's got a sleazy bluesy riff that goes, that kind of like repeats itself over and over again. And the su- subject matter, it's about Iggy pop. It could be about anybody that comes from a small town to a big city and then kind of turns to sex worker or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's at the same time, it's fun. And, uh, and just the vocal delivery is iconic. And, um, at some points on this album, as much as I like some of the songs, I think there are a lot of iconic moments. And then I hear this and I'm like, nope, this is a classic for a reason. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I like this one. It's, um, maybe paint by numbers Bowie, but I can't fault it. It's, uh, it's, it's got a groove to it. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the show life on Mars, which was a BBC kind of like crime comedy show um, from about I don't know, 10, 15 years ago um, where a guy from the present goes back to the seventies, like time travels back to the seventies and joins the cop force. And uh, it's just a fish out of water story, but his grizzled Irish like, or I don't know if he was Irish, but his, his grizzled partner is a guy named Gene. So he calls him Gene Genie the whole show and uh, can't help but think about this song. And the whole show is like laced with Bowie references, but um Anyways, like the song quite a bit. Yeah, it's 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 a very it's a, it's an iconic Bowie song. It was actually uh, right behind Rebel Rebel, and it's it's never really fallen out of the uh, the set lists. It's it's been in like every live tour since it was released. Um, I do like this song. Uh, it's a catchy song with uh, more honking on Bobo. Uh, just a swaggering song with has a little bit of rattlesnake, and I think that. Uh, uh, kind of goes along with that Bo Diddley type of style um, that you kind of get from a lot of these uh, London rock bands. It has a little bit of glam stomp, and my brain, for whatever reason, wants to create a sibling song, this song, to John, I'm Only Dancing. Um, it's just in my mind. It's a classic for a reason. I kind of do that with this song in Cracked Actor for some reason. Probably it's probably the harmonica. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a it's a great song. I love that uh that Ronson riff. Down up, yep. Down 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 up. Apparently there was a 
sort of music video directed by Mick Rock in October of 1972. Filmed it in San Francisco. He mixed the concert in the studio footage of Bowie performing with the Spiders, um, along with location shots of the singer posing at the Mars Hotel with Sarinda Fox. Um, he, Bowie wanted the video to depict Ziggy as some kind of Hollywood street rat with a consort of the Marilyn uh, Monroe brand. And uh, I can't say I've ever seen it. I'm sure it's on the tubes. That was Sirenda Fox? Yes. Who was referenced in the first song and, and watched that band. Ah, uh, yes. So she, and she later did, yeah, married David Johansson. Did you guys know that that's the same guy as Buster Poindexter? God fucking damn it, Mark. I'm just, you know, making sure I got to really cover my bases here. She also uh, married a pile of scarves named Steven Tyler. <laughs> oh. I might hate, I don't know. I, I don't hate Aerosmith as much as I hate uh, Leonard Skinner, but they're Aerosmith, close. like, yeah, a pile of scarves that apparently someone put a magic spell on. <laughs> <laughs> the sorting hat. Uh. <laughs> you know, no, uh, no, I'll give a. Uh, I think I think two songs warrant Aerosmith's existence. One is extremely overplayed, and it's yes, Dream On, which it's a good song. Yep, absolutely. So another really good song is though. What? Weird. Uh, another great song. Crying is Living on the Edge. Oh, okay, that is a good song. <laughs> Can't help yourself from falling. Is there any? Is there any segregationist lyrics that I need to be aware of on that song? Uh, no, they're not endorsing sure. a uh, pro-segregationist uh, governor on that song. Like then it's not for me. It's not for me. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, season three, folks. <laughs> Eat the rich. Aerosmith. Eat the rich. Um, All right. All right, Stephen. We're going we're gonna to end strong. We're going to end about as strong as any Bowie album's ever ended. Lady Grinning Soul. Stagecraft cabaret sound to an extent. Uh, they're giving they're giving Garson on on a scale of um on a scale of time to Aladdin Sane title track on the Garsonometer. This is a five. It's right in the middle. He does he he he's he's reined in a little bit, but he's allowed to play around a little more. I think it's a very strong closing track. What do you think about it, Eric? I think it's great. I this is a new one for me. Um, I remember Steve when we went to that Bowie tribute night. Um, uh, Spacewalker, the the uh, the lady DJ that was so impressive and doing the really cool 
multi-track beatboxed versions of Bowie songs played this. And I was like, what the fuck song is this? And then we looked it up and it was like, oh shit, it's on Aladdin. Say that's why I don't know it. Um, yeah, I, m- I remember that. And I remember her delivery. Of yeah, it now, she did right. a great job. Um, uh, I love this song. And I, th- I actually like how you said it's as good as Bowie closes an album because I, as, as great as some of the albums are, sometimes the closers, um, don't necessarily need to be closers, but this one is a closer. This is a great ending to an album. It's a swooping. Uh, you said stage cabaret. I, I think cinematic. This is like a, you know, and it has been comp- compared to a Bond song before, and I can see that. Uh, he's had other songs that sound like Bond songs, um, but it's swooping for sure. Um, it's a love song, um, but it's like uh, definitely connecting this this power of love to mytholo- like old myths to um you know almost like this uh this person that you're in love with that he's in love with is, is like a, almost like no gender um just this uh this power of affection um and uh there's like some spanish style acoustic guitar work going on ronson's doing that below the uh garson piano which i i appreciate it sounds great together um and uh i just love the sax and the acoustic guitar together it's just smooth um this song is uh is a real special treat on this album very good closer yeah that uh that that flamenco guitar strumming that ronson does like i said ronson does a lot of uh different guitar work than he does on previous albums um, on the, on this one. He, he, he experiments quite a bit and the flamenco work in the, the background is really pretty. And um, I mean, the closest he ever got to that again is if he was playing on that cover of Amsterdam. And I don't think that's him, <laughs> but I just wanted to bring that song up again because it's a good song. Uh, yeah. And I would say, I would say uh, this is the exception as, as, even the songs I like on this, I think there's a, sh- there's a shallowness to the, the lyrical depth. Um, and that's on purpose. That's where Bowie was at this time in his writing, but this is an exception. This song, this song, uh, definitely goes places and it's, you know, but it's, uh, the power of seduction from one special person, um, amidst uh, crazy life. And, uh, it's a good, it's a good song. I 100% agree with the fact that this type of song should have been used in a Bond movie. Uh, James Bond in Lady Grinning Soul. Um, I really love Bowie's falsetto vocals doing great work here. Um, I like what Mike Garson, um, as he kind of just gives it a French flair uh, with the... uh, it, it's not really a, a true cabaret type song. It, it is a ballad and it's just a really beautifully arranged song, a good way to cap out the entire album. And uh, yeah, no, I agree with everything you both said. Strong song, strong way to end the record. Yeah. And then yeah, the saxophone work is great. Uh, the outro solo of uh, that Mick Ronson kind of, He's like a subdued solo towards the end that has Garson diddling behind it is really nice way to close the record. Um, very majestic sounding, I think. And, uh, I really, the, the delivery of the, the line and when the clothes are strewn, I really, 
really like that. I think they, they, they bring the vocals up to on that line in particular, they kind of bring the vocals to the forefront for just a second. And it really stands out. Um, another cool thing about this track is it introduced me to a new artist. I found a cover of it by a woman named uh, Anna Calvi. Have either of you heard of her before? No. No. Sweet with musky eye, lady of another grinning soul. She's kind of a um, Saint Vincent. Uh, good. Uh, she's. A, I think she's. She's from across the pond somewhere. Guitar player, a singer-songwriter, knows how to rock, but also knows how to sing very. Um, Classically, she has a cover of this song. She does a cover of um, with another artist live of a Black Star, which is pretty amazing. It's worth Googling. Uh, she has three albums, I believe. And she also did all of the musical arrangements for season five of Peaky Blinders. Kind of a one man, one woman show. Pretty cool artist. Anna Calvi. Uh, last name is spelled C-A-L-V-I. A digger. That is cool. Peaky Blinders uses a lot of Bowie uh, music and, of course, Nick Cave and Radiohead. Um, and then the original score work is solid. It's one show that uh, maybe in this quarantine zone I'll finally shotgun my way through. Um, but no promises. Well, if you do, you know where I live. That is true. Before we give our rankings, there was... I listened to three bonus tracks. The studio version of All the Young Dudes. And then a live version of the Superman and a live version of Life on Mars. Was there anything else? Um, uh, there was the sax version of John I'm Only Dancing, which was actually pretty great. It's, it's a pretty fun version of that song. Um, and then there was a single version of Time and a single version of uh, something. A, a couple single. Like, yeah, they, they, at some point they released a whole bonus disc for this album. And like there were three single versions that I just mentioned and then there was a bunch of live versions and I did, I did not listen to it um, not so much uh, good for mining the uh, the b-sides for this one but that's it I do have to say that the studio version of all the young dudes is very very good it has some great saxophone on it the live version of the Superman that's on the bonus disc for this I think is a better version of the Superman than the one on the album we just talked about, Man Who Sold the World. Yeah, good recommendation. I will make sure to put it on the list. Hey, Lennox, we just listened to Aladdin saying, how many bolts would you give it? I would give it a 3.5 out of 5. Cool. And what's your favorite song on it? My favorite song is Gene Genie because I named my car dad after it. Ah, rest in peace, Gene Genie. Rest in peace. All right, then. Mark, what do you give this So on first listen, and uh, I have listened to this song before. I'm not coming into it fresh like Eric is. Um, I gave it a 2.5, but um, that was on my first pass through. I did edge it up to a 3 out of 5, 
Um, I do think this album is a little bit of a hodgepodge coming off of the strong, solid concept that was Ziggy Stardust. Uh, at times, I felt this was kind of the B-sides of kind of the, uh, the material that wasn't strong enough uh, to land on Ziggy. Uh, kind of an odds and sods kind of follow-up, if you will. Um, that was my first initial impression of it, and then kind of going back over through it. Um, it's just like an in-betweener record. I, I don't give it the classic status that a lot of critics do, and I have a feeling that Steve does. Um, it's still a very, very, very great album. Um, maybe great is a little too, uh, too strong. It's a very, very good album. I feel that sometimes gets bogged down in the weight of, uh, it being a follow-up to such an iconic record. Um, and I think what really makes this such a strong, uh, part of his back catalog is how iconic the album cover is. Um, but yeah, three out of five. I'm pretty confident by saying that. Actually, uh, I ranked it the same. Um, uh, I, uh, I just, I, I agree. It's, it's an uneven album and I just can't help but notice that Bowie's having a hard time getting past like a lot of, sh a lot of shallow subject matter in this album. Um, and you can tell, and he's talked about it before. I mean, he had to mix things up to write songs after this. He was he was kind of scraping the barrel. Um, that being said, there are like, I don't, I, at first I was like, I don't know if any of these songs would make it in my pantheon of Bowie songs. I don't know that. But time will tell because Panic in Detroit, the title track, and the closer are very, very special songs. And I could be uh, eating my hat when we do, whenever we do our final episode where we do our top 10 songs. I, uh, one of those may be on there because they're, they're, those three are amazing songs. I will say the production is better than anything up until now. The production is really cool. You can hear a lot more. There's a lot more going on. I think as a production piece, it's worth its weight in gold. Um, the like the quality of the song though it does it does feel like some are just kind of elbowed in um some are very thoughtful some aren't um but yeah three three out of five i will give it a 3.75 out of five tempted to give it a four i'm not going to but uh i think i think it has very solid production very solid arrangements. I, um, the density or lack of the lyrics does not bother me. I think that some of these songs are just really classic songs and it kind of sees it, 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 it seesaws between Rolling Stones type rock and roll and bubblegum doo wop and then avant garde piano tracks. And I just think that the mix of those three creates a very interesting stew. Um, usually you'd get two of those together on an album, but not all three, those styles. And you get all three of those styles about at least two songs each on this, this album, if not more. Um, yeah, I, I love that closing track. I like pretty a star quite a bit. Time 
is an all-timer. It's got two classic Bowie singles. Um, Drive-In Saturday is kind of a song I never thought much of and that I ended up loving. It's, I'm a big fan of this album. I definitely like this album more than I thought I liked this album. Uh, big, big fan of it. So I do it. Yeah, it's not perfect. I'm not going to make some crazy like, ah, oh, it's better than Ziggy Stardust, but I definitely might be in the mood for this more than I would be for Ziggy Stardust many times. So good, good record. All right, then. Um, I, uh, I like the fact that we're all pretty closely identifying some of the strengths and weaknesses of this record. Um, and uh, yeah, um, it's, it's certainly worth checking out if you've never heard Aladdin say and you happen to be listening to this podcast, like you would think that that's basically in Bowie's 101 crash course. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good one that, you know, has its problems, but at the same time, um, its strengths will outshine a lot of its weaknesses. Um, but with that, Eric, I think it's time. Let's do it. All right. So, Mark, you got the list pulled up. We changed the numbers. I do. Here we go. Three. That would be the album tonight. Okay. Back to the eighties. Back to the eighties. Or was that nineties? Well, I cheated. I've listened I've listened to this one a few times yeah. uh, since we started the podcast. We will have some things to talk oh, about. Boy. Oh. Do you like the Monkey Island video games? I hope you do, because the music sounds just like that game. Oh. You also are brought uh, up Dancing in the Streets, which is actually this era, so we'll have to discuss that. And, uh, yeah. We're going to get to talk about uh, Iggy Pop more because he wrote some of the songs on this album. All right. Tonight, going from Aladdin Stain to the Tina Turner. Get, yeah. to talk about, get to talk about some Tina Turner. That's right. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we go, I'd like to dedicate this episode to my dearly departed dog, Bruno. One week, one week without him. Today, we had to put him to sleep last Saturday because he was very old and having trouble getting around. He was probably 13 or 14. He was a French Bulldog mixed with a Boston Terrier. A very unique breed. And man, he started getting old in time. Just caught up with him. But he was a very good dog. And I miss him very much. And if I got anything out of this damn quarantine, my family and I had spent the last week of his life with him every day at home for a week straight. So he got some, some extra family time before he had to uh, shuffle this, this dog coil. That was nice. So Bruno, we miss you. You were a good dog. Hell of a dog. Cheers. The dog of dogs. Absolutely. Uh, well said, Stephen. Hope you're doing okay. Hope all the other uh, Chambers Larsons are doing well as well. Um, but with that said, uh, we're going back to 1984 uh, with the album Tonight, where we'll get to hear David Bowie uh, doing a cover of God Only Knows. 
and uh, <laughs> the rest of it. Uh, um, oh, neighborhood threats. So, <laughs> all right. Here we go, folks. Uh, we hope that we brought you closer to Pod. Oh,